Ever wondered what engagement in social media actually means? And what gets more video views, a mouth open or a mouth closed thumbnail? And who actually runs Gordon Ramsay's YouTube account? Hint, it's not Gordon Ramsay. All plus more is revealed in this week's episode of BWB Extra, when we will continue our conversation with the brilliant James Loveridge, director of entertainment at Little Dot Studios. We take a deeper dive into how the mechanics of running profitable social media actually works at Little Dot, who take care of a plethora of successful client channels, as well as running their very own media network. James also tells us about how the industry has grown, changed, and clamped down over the years, and how Little Dot manages to stay ahead of the curve, as well as blowing the lid off his bugbear about the binary view towards creativity he sees all too often these days in the younger generation. Welcome to Making Content Engage. When I first started out in this kind of area of work, I was working for a company, uh, North One Television. And after a few months, I was working on the Gadget Show and Fifth Gear. Oh, and, the Gadget Show. I love that show. I'm yeah. such a Gadget fan. Yeah, okay. I love that show. So I was working on that like 10 years ago when people weren't really doing kind of YouTube and, and it wasn't really, we were kind of very early adopters in that. But then eventually I moved on to the World Rally Championship. Now, I'm not into cars. I'm not really into motorsport. After a month or two of working on the World Rally Championship, I loved it. I could tell you all the drivers, what the you know, race speeds were. You, know, you, you become really obsessed with engaging content. So that kind of parliament example, I guarantee you, if we had a team working on it, there would start being memes and in-jokes. There's a reason people care about content. It's because it's engaging. So if you can find the vein in the content that drives that fan engagement, then you make the best content. You get amazing reach. You get fantastic views. And it's so much more fun to make. Engaging, the only thing that bothers me about engagement it's like an addiction. It's like engaging is what someone watching someone fall flat on their face. You know, engaging is this, it's quite a low common denominator of what humans like. Funnily enough, I had a conversation about comedy maybe six years ago and comedy content to work on. And I was very much told, like, park your ego. Like, your take on comedy doesn't really matter. It's about what are the people engaging with. And yeah, you might have the football to the groin <laughs> version of, of engaging, but you've also got some really highbrow, amazing Attenborough documentaries that are engaging. It's realistically, you're serving the fans that are there with the content that you have. And it's not my job to, to kind of stick my nose up Is and say... Do you mean they do something? Is that a requirement? So, yeah, when I say engaging, what I mean is uh, it's getting views, people are commenting, people yeah. are liking, they're sharing, they are, you know, on, on Facebook, they're tagging their friends, on, you know, uh, TikTok, they're reacting to and miming to it. You know, it's it's creating a sense of uh, attachment and, and you know, uh, fan service to it where people feel like they want to... I feel like I've, if I say engage one more time... No. Well, what's the, the other four? I'm thinking if you plotted it on a graph, you've got engagement one where the other force must be like political correctness. It must be that, you know, you could take Graham Norton's show and you must be, because he's quite funny and he's got that, he, well, he's very funny, but he's got a, a lovely atmosphere to him. So he's very good at sort of getting away with saying things. I mean, I heard him interview Harry Berry and, you know, joking about sacking a star, you know, or whatever. The way YouTube and everyone's going, it's a bit of a rabbit hole, but is that is that the second pillar that you have to sort of be very cautious? 
You know what? That tone of voice massively depends on the client and the show. Some clients and some shows are willing to be very tongue-in-cheek. They don't care. Just do, make a meme, take the But piss. do you not have a problem then? Because YouTube, like, I mean, they won't let me put anything up on YouTube with music-related, <laughs> you know, or, you know, or you know what I mean? It's always... Um, it's, they're becoming restrictive platforms. So do you have to bear that in mind I, or I, not so much? We operate with the rights holders. So whatever we're uploading, we're completely cleared. Oh, no, it. I meant like controversial. You know, no, you're never bumping into that. It's not being No, an issue. not really. I think there's... I guess this is on TV. We we have had some instances... Yeah, because all of it's TV cleared. Yeah, but that would be funny if they banned it on YouTube and it had been on Channel 4. That would yeah. be interesting, I, wouldn't I, it? I, well, there has been instances... So... Certain platforms operate very much cracking nuts with sledgehammers. Nuance doesn't exist when it mm. comes to community guidance, essentially. And I understand the difficulties these platforms have. If you've got free reign that anyone can upload whatever they like, then you need to have a very comprehensive regulatory system in place. But we had an instance last year where uh, a comedian that we run their account made a fairly risky joke. If you look at it black and white, they depicted violence on a child. It's, it's a joke, but ultimately their community guidelines, you cannot even verbally describe this type of act on a child and it is an infraction of community guidelines. Did their whole site get shut down or only that? It didn't get shut down. It got heavily affected. But it's one of those that it's really difficult because like to the letter of the law of that platform, they were like, no, you've broken our guidelines. We're very clear on this. This is a hard no. And, as, and a similar thing right. in, in that vein, like it, they said like they, no topless images of children at all in any sense on anything. So if you're filming a documentary where someone's walking along a beach in the background, there are children playing on the beach, that would lead to a community guideline infraction. You're, you're done. So, and that's a, didn't happen to us, but that happened to another, um, another kind of agency where, yeah, it was a documentary uh, on a beach. It could have even just been about World War or two or whatever, and there's a kid running around topless and boom. Well, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a hell of a rabbit hole, this. So, uh, <laughs> um, Well, that's one bit of the business. What's the other bit of the business? So, uh, yeah, that's the white label side of the agency. So the agency split into entertainment, brand and sports, and I, I front up the entertainment department. And then the other side <laughs> is our... <laughs> you say you fucked it up. Front up. Oh, front it up. <laughs> I like that, though. God. I was like, I professionally fuck up that department. <laughs> I love as if I was just blase. Yeah, and I fucked that up. Anyway, yeah. we're going under. This is the last, last you'll ever hear of our company. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, and the other side of the business is just dealing with the lawsuits. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> um, so we've got a agency, and I front the entertainment department and then uh, the other side is our network so that is our, our media network where we run a series of channels of IP that we own uh, but they're hubs and locations for uh, factual content so we've got a thing called um, a channel called Real Stories which is all factual content timeline which is historical documentaries um, and then it just kind of rolled that out I think there's like 40 of those and that's a mixture of acquisitions original productions and uh, brand funded content but it all kind of from the lessons we learn over the last kind of eight, nine years building white label services for other big well-known IP. We then applied that to our own network of content that we run across a whole mix of platforms. What you do is so useful. And I think it's 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 a bit like in our business, there's stuff that people in theory could do a lot of it themselves. But when it comes to it, 
it's compliance. I've got to get it done. I've got to get all this media. I've got to chop it up. I need, you know, you, if you've, you know, I, I, what I guess I'm getting to is I feel sorry for a small business or when they start now, because it's, they've got to look after eight channels, produce content for on eight channels. And you're just like, and chop it up. Right. They end up staying at their phone for days. You know, a lot of this stuff you can only do on your phone too, which is like, yeah, always yeah, freaks me out. Yeah. It's like, you can't actually sit at your desktop and chop it. I mean, there's ways of doing it and there's technology out there, but when a small business starts, do you feel that they've got to take on social media? There is no no anymore? I think that it would be naive to not at least explore the opportunities there and what you should be doing because when run effectively is such a huge tool. Like I would say that in my realm of entertainment, the lion's share of my clients it is a revenue-driving activity. It's all right. about making the money through advertising revenue on those platforms. Oh, really? That's the primary interest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I would the say- revenue they can earn on YouTube by making sure there's interesting content about Graham Norton. Yep. Yep. And so it mixes. It's like I'm dealing with distribution teams within these companies where, yeah, it's about how do we leverage our archive? How do we make money out of the content that we've got there? Uh, and then I'll, I'll be dealing with marketing teams where actually it's not about money. It's just about reach and, you know, find out the data. Who watched it? Where is it? One of the amazing things we've done with comedians in recent years, we use the data to help comedians plot their tours. So where are your videos being watched? What countries are you popular in? So they used that data before they started booking venues because they knew they could sell it out. And we did a fantastic campaign with uh, Michael McIntyre where we helped him sell out the Radio City in New York. Yeah, where's he popular? That would be a good question. Um, UK and Australia, kind of key markets for him. But yeah, so we we got this gig in, uh, he had this gig in in New York and we started the campaign in September and he, he sold it out by the end of the month. Wow. And the gig was in February and he was like, you did that. Like, we, I never would have sold that show had we not had this targeted campaign at New York, at LA, and kind of built up his profile there. And we were like, fantastic, we've got this case study. And then coronavirus happened, and we're like, oh, that's useless. Uh, <laughs> there's no more gigs. So for the marketing teams, data is really like invaluable and, and understanding well, how popular are they and can they utilize this to then promote their new shows, their new films, you know, whole marketing campaigns. So there's quite a few different kind of KPIs. For instance, like Amazon Prime Video want to drive subscriptions, you know, same with Netflix, you know, that it's about how do we build a brand awareness around the shows that are on our platform to then drive subscriptions to our platform. So there's different KPIs for different clients, but I would say the lion's share of my remit is revenue generation. Has the industry changed since you started? Oh, massively. Yeah, massively. But what? So when we started, it was just trying to get people to even give YouTube a thought, a second thought, because it was just cat videos, dog videos. And- yeah, it was Random. only launched in 2006 or yeah, 2007. No one thought it was worth anything. It wasn't worth their time, wasn't worth their effort. And I think that's where we were really fortunate to carve a big kind of section of the market because everyone thought, you know, secondary digital rights were useless or worthless. And then we started building these massive channels. And, you know, when we took over the Gordon Ramsay channel, it was, I think, 50,000 subscribers. It's now 18 and a half million. Wow. So I think the main thing we've noticed in the change is just people really understand it now. Whereas before I would kind of have to slowly explain, this is how YouTube works. This is how we build it. This is why it's important. And 
that kind of conversation's gone now. People are going to get it and they see the big numbers and every, you know, every broadcaster is leaning into YouTube and wants to kind of ring fence more rights to have exclusivity to it. But, you know, the conversation and the level that we're at has has vastly changed as well. You know, I've got people, uh, like we A-B test everything and it's so much more data-driven and so much more thoughtful, really. So like, I've, I've got one guy who's currently testing what percentage click-through rate is higher if the person in the thumbnail has their mouth closed or mouth open. Wow. Yeah. And what's the answer? <laughs> mouth open. Mouth open. Mouth open. Yeah, it's more expressive. What's he saying? What's he saying? Yeah. Higher click-through rates. Smile you know, in the street. How much text on a thumbnail should mirror the text in the description? How much, you know, all this stuff is stuff we kind of go through and we're constantly testing and trying to find, because they're little increments, they're little edges. And if I learned that on, let's say, you know, Jonathan Ross show that actually these type of thumbnails work really well, well then, well, let's look at all of our chat shows. Let's look at all the stuff that's similar kind of content and we can lift that up by 10%. Do you think that behavioral science then adapts that, you know, we're, we're all getting very good at filtering stuff. I, you know, I think all of our filters are getting pretty amazing how we can sort of surf through information and just, do you, therefore, if you test it again, do you think in a few years that it'd be, oh no, mouth closed, it's all about? Yes, for, for short answer. Yeah. Uh, but you said earlier about, you know, how does a, a, a smaller kind of company operate if they've got to do all of these things? Yeah. And I guess one of the rare things that we have at Little Dot is like, our scale now is is quite vast that actually we see changes and nuances and, and alterations in kind of algorithmic behavior on the platform before the platform representatives can tell us they've made a change. So typically there will be engineers in San Bruno, they'll make a change something will happen on the platform and then maybe four months later the reps will be like, oh, by the way, we made a change. But we'll notice that before that, because the craziest stat that we were told recently of internet users in the UK, our content reaches 74% of them. Wow. That's uh, impressive. It's mad. <laughs> it's, it's mad. Extremely impressive. <laughs> okay, so this is the guest section where we allow the guests to take controls of the reins, not that we've been doing them any good, and talk about something they want to talk about. So, uh, James, anything on your mind? Yeah, so uh, talking to biggest bugbears, I think it's the, the binary view of creativity. Now, obviously working in a digital kind of media space, a lot of people that kind of come into the, the role at an entry level want to work in a creative industry, and it's really exciting. But I think that a misstep or, or a misunderstanding that I often see and I find quite frustrating is, is the idea that creativity just means the very binary basic dictionary description of some creating video content production like traditional production it's like and I think as a result of that people don't open themselves to opportunities in other aspects and where you can be creative like I know it sounds a bit but you can be creative in a contract negotiation. You can be creative in a commercial proposal. You can be mm. creative in an operational structure. There's ways of actually engaging something in, in a rewarding, creative way without all just you know being in production. And I find that it's very frustrating where you get people kind of come in and not even open up to other opportunities and say, "Well, I want to, I want to create." And when you t talk to them, it's like, "Are you doing anything creative in your spare time?" Do you make things? Do you yeah, make films? Yeah. Do you make... No. So well, then I don't... I think you're lying to yourself in terms of saying, I want to be a creative. How do you fix that? You you just encourage people to be creative? Do you recognise this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're starting to look at changing education though. I mean, the whole of education needs to be reformed. So it horrified me in going around schools that they're still taught the same as what I was taught 40 years ago. 
Wow. We're still teaching the same stuff. No new stuff. subjects. Wow. They laughed at me when I was like, I cannot believe you're teaching the same stuff in the same manner. They're like, no, 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 we've changed how we teach. But yes, would they agree the content is the same. But education, we're still taught throughout all primary, secondary and university. It's all about how do you answer that exam question? And my problem with with it is that every exam question, and we have it with any new grads that join, you give them a client problem, they're like, well, what's the answer? It's like, okay, no, no, no. All your education has been, here's the exam question, and there is then an answer for it. And you're taught that. And all the questions that are posed throughout education, at least in the UK, is very here is the answer people then come into the world of work and it's like there isn't an answer we've got to find out yeah and i think that journey to finding the answer to like that problem solving aspect of it is where the reward kind of comes in and i think that you know like if you have such a kind of clear set of thing of like well i work in media so i want to make media and it's like well, no, you, you can but there's so much more there's so much more across the, the whole spreadsheets <laughs> there's, <laughs> the, the statistics. there's there's envelope stuffing I, there's you know, mouth open mouth closed <laughs> yes i mean if i could t- you know like oh there's a 10 percent increase on mouth open thumbnails uh, in the uk you'd be like the comedians must t- you could sell it off the back this date is the comedians you know it must be so much material honestly it, it's it's really I find it really interesting and I think that it's like if you open yourself up to more aspects of it and don't just have such a a, a kind of binary view when you enter the kind of media landscape you could find so much more but I love what you're saying isn't it look in the music industry something I've uh, tried badly in but um, you know there's this glamour of the music industry and it's it's databases, it's spreadsheets, it's, it's stuffing envelopes. That's where that I'm joking from, you know. And it, is it not that in any job there is going to be some really shit thing to do, especially when you're younger in your career, and then there's other... But what you're saying is on a daily basis, apply creativity. And, and I suppose, like, that it kind of comes to where you have people that have the confidence to be a bit more autonomous, to kind of try stuff and try and fail. And, you know, I'd, I'd rather have someone that's, you know, tried something interesting. It doesn't work, but at least they're, you know, stepping outside of just the monotony of what they're already doing. But like, I think that's creativity. I think there's so much more to it, and that should be rewarded. I see. So the people who come into that industry are fixated on the manufacturer, which is the same as in music. People would be fixated on being the MC on being the artist. Same in law. It's the same in many things. In law, that. what is it to be the barrister? Yeah, or the perform, you know, the like performer, the, the, performers, the barrister. Or no, you mean, like you know, people walk in and think there's going to be some mass glamour and solve yeah. the world or save the world or you know, in crime, get the man to walk free. You know, all of, and it's like there is so much stuff. I outside. suppose what I'm doing is I'm just being someone that moans, being like, why don't you have world knowledge at day one? Why don't you understand the complete complexities of this industry on your first day? <laughs> Jesus Christ, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have twenty years of knowledge, you prick? Like, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, you know what? No, I'll no, take no, it all no, back. no, 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 <laughs> no, I, I think it's I, 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 um, I like it. I think the naivety of career choice and maybe some of the reason you get streamed at school is these teachers are dealing with thousands of people who don't know what they want to do and they all want to be famous or whatever, that just saying to someone, you're shit at maths, you're quite good at French, maybe go that direction, you know, is about all they've got as signposts. And, and you're talking about that as well. You're talking about within your career direction. I wish there was a way to broader communicate what the these jobs meant. Mm. You don't know what the fucking job means until you do it. 
for a while. But also, I'm aware that I'm talking about an industry that just didn't exist. I was yeah, possibly right. one of the first in the country that ever did what I did. You know, like, no no TV show was running a YouTube channel. It just wasn't a thing. And, like, it's why I find it so funny when I talk to my parents. They still don't know what I do. No. Like, they just go, oh, he puts adverts on YouTube. I'm like, that's not what I... It's not is sure. that what they do? <laughs> yeah. what, what's Snapchat? Uh, yeah, th- this is the thing. No, no, like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to work it out. I, I've seen it, you know. It's like what? Snapchat is another another beast altogether. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a lot of fun, but I'm still uh, yeah. Like comparative to my knowledge on on other platforms, Snapchat what is still do you, it. What do you do? Tell your mum and dad then. Well, I, I tell them what I do. Like I run YouTube channels for TV shows and talent and broadcasters. Oh, lovely, darling. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> my my niece and nephew. Well, my niece who is five, she gets really angry when she's watching Peppa Pig and an advert comes up and she goes. Damn you, Uncle James. I'm like, it's not me. Stop telling her that I put that there. Like, I didn't do that. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah personally so responsible for the advert. My brother has told her that I put all the adverts on YouTube and any advert is James's fault. So, there you have it. That was this week's episode of BWB Extra. A big thank you to you, James Loveridge, for joining us, to my co-host, Julia Tory, and a big thank you to you, dear listener. And we'll be back with a new episode next week. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, follow us on Spotify, come say hi on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at BIZ without BS. Until next time, it's ciao.